Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 359, a special Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamuz edition. This program is dedicated in loving memory to Rabbi Yitzchak Azagwi, of Shalom, passed away on Rosh Tamuz. May his family be consoled and have all the strength to grow in his merit and inspiration and to perpetuate the work that they do already, continue to grow in every way possible and in all their endeavors. So yes, this week will be Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tammuz, the 94th anniversary from when the Friedrich Rebbe was released from prison in the year Tov Reish Pezai in 1927. And Yud Beis Tammuz was a legal holiday in Russia in the former Soviet Union. So the actual redemption, the actual liberation was on Yud Gimel Tammuz. So we celebrate those two days. The Friedrich Rebbe, in the first anniversary of that Geula, of that redemption, of that liberation, writes a letter in which he writes that not just my, I myself was liberated on this day, but all Jews everywhere. Literally defines Jews, even those that are not just, he says, which means that love Teira and performances, but even a Jew who at this point only knows that his name is Jew, doesn't have any other awareness of his Yiddishkeit, and yet he too was redeemed. The question is, what does that mean? Why? So, the Rebbe, many different talks connected to Yudbeis Thomas discussed this. Let me focus on one or two points that are lessons for each one of us, not just back to when that was 94 years ago, but also today. Because you can also ask a second question. You know, that was back then. It was the Soviet Union. It was a very difficult and literally a prison and persecuting Jews in every possible way. We live today in freedom. So what possible lesson can we learn from times like that? And yet we do, just as we remember when the Jews left Egypt, so too we're not, though we're not oppressed as they were then in slavery, and we live in freedom, yet there are many lessons we can learn from Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. The same thing is with Yud Beis Tammuz. So one first lesson is how when a person says their mind and their beliefs to something, nothing can stop them. Friedrich Rebbe was in a country that had completely outlawed Judaism. And there was no system of justice, of due process. They arrested the Friedrich Rebbe, seeing him as a threat, being a leader, being a leader that they saw as being someone who will not give in to fear, they arrested him to, to intimidate him, and actually, first, they sentenced him to death because they saw if they can, in some way, eliminate, God forbid, the Rebbe, the rest of the people would be demoralized, it would be a lot easier to control them. The Friedrich Rebbe insisted, as he writes in his diary, that he would not in any way weaken his resolve. He insisted on speaking in Yiddish, even though he spoke Russian, take his tefillin and talis and tefillin, and many other things which were literally putting himself at further risk, not cooperating. Because he felt that if his spirit in some way gives in even a drop, surrenders a drop, it would be his uh, downfall. And what happened? So the famous story when one of the Jewish, Yevsekzi, this was the Jewish communists, pointed a gun to the Rebbe's head 
Now remember, these Jewish communists were grandchildren of the Tzamech Tzedek's Chassidim. And Chassidi Chabad, some of them were. Lulav, Nachmanson, pointed a gun to the Rebbe's head and said, Rebbe, this gun has made many people cooperate. And the Rebbe responded unflinchingly and unwavering, this toy, this tzatzke, can only frighten someone that has one world and many gods, but not someone who has one god and two worlds, or many worlds. And he responded, Nachmanson responded to the Rebbe and said, we'll see who will prevail. And the Rebbe said, yeah, ver vemen. We'll see, yes, we will see who will prevail. Nachmanson, within a short time, was killed, which was the common custom around there. The Friedrich Rebbe survived. Not just survived, came out of the Soviet Union, through Poland, through Latvia, and ultimately ended up in America in 1940 and reestablished Chabad here, and the rest is history. One man stood up because one God and many worlds. You can't frighten someone that's connected to something that's not physical. So you're going to take his life. His faith remains alive. So of course the Rebbe Friedrich Rebbe was not inviting, God forbid, any killing. But you're not going to frighten me. And this was the position, the spirit. So even though today is true, we don't have that, thank God, that type of oppression, that type of persecution. But we still need spirit. Today the enemy is within the apathy that we may have due to our comforts, to our, to our prosperity, to our successes. So that type of firm resolve and commitment is a lesson we learn from Yud Beis Tammuz every year. So when the Friedrich Rebbe says, not, not only I, but everybody, because this was a day that demonstrated that type of commitment. And if you stand up, imagine to such a regime, how about, how about all our other challenges we may not be quite so formidable, even though psychologically they can be quite formidable. So that's lesson number one. Lesson number two was that, indeed, at the time, the Friedrich was released from prison. First they had exiled him. Then they commuted the sentence and they let him go back home. So at the time, of course, the Soviet Union had who knows how many millions of Jews. And this was a demonstration for the people, the people there. Look, it gave tremendous strength. Remember, the Friedrich Rebbe had built a whole underground, underground network of building yeshivas and schools and mikvahs and shechita and mila and all the different things Jews needed. Obviously, it all had to be secret. And though you can say, well, what, how much impact did that already have? Well, it had impact. Till this day, there are people who are affected by that. If you go now to, to the Russia today, you see a renaissance of Jewish life, which would not have been possible had you not have some of those embers remaining from the Friedrich Rebbe's Messir Snefesh. So the second impact was literally on saving a Jewish community, a Jewish, more than a community, a Jewish nation under such difficulties, giving them the strength to continue on with their Yiddishkeit, with many challenges, many challenges. But as long as you have one f ember remain burning, even if the whole building burned down, you can rebuild based on that. And look what happened after 1945, after World War II. Judaism was rebuilt. First in other countries, in the United States, in Israel, then in Europe, and then ultimately came back to the former Soviet Union. So the bottom line lesson to each one of us is this. 
Each one of us may be in our own different type of prisons. It can be a prison of our minds and our hearts and our souls, a prison of our own lack of self-confidence. And we will have all kinds of voices that will try to explain that you've got to resign, you have to give up, that you have to surrender. Yud Beis Thomas comes and tells us, absolutely not. You have a force within you that if you're able to bolster it and let it speak up and find those that can support you, you can achieve whatever you set your mind to do. So it's a tremendous lesson for life today where many people, unfortunately, without such circumstances as they were 94 years ago, feel defeated, feel resigned, feel giving up. In Beis Thomas, there's no such thing. If a Rebbe stood up then and he gave us power, says each one of us has that power in Yud Beis Thomas, it's a time to revisit our attitudes and reignite that spirit. This is just one, two of many lessons that one can take and derive from Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamus in the context of Chassidus applied. The Rebbe said once, and I think it was in Tov Shechov Zayin, Yud Beis Tamus, said that had the Friedrich Rebbe then, unfortunately, been killed, all of Chabad would have come to a stop. Because in natural ways, there wasn't yet a successor. Though the Rebbe was already miyud, he was engaged to be married to the Friedrich Rebbe's daughter, but it didn't happen yet. And it was the circumstances would not have been exactly conducive for a Chabad being rebuilt. It would, have been a, it would have been who knows what. The Rebbe said that in Tav Shechov Zayin. So that just adds to the gravity of what Yud Beis Tammuz really represents. Much more can be said on this, but I believe it's, let's just take this lesson, and it's a good enough lesson to be able to really live by in our times and forge ahead by you so, move forward with whatever particular respective shlichus you have. And if you need help, reach out to someone. There are people out there don't, you're not alone. Every one of us has unbelievable strength from our souls, but especially when we synergize, when we, when we connect with others, it can only help us be able to rise up and achieve the goals and dreams even beyond your wildest expectations. Okay. It's also Yud Beis Thomas, as we know, the 141st birthday of the Friedrich Rebbe. He was born in Yud Beis Thomas in Tov Reish Mem, so we're now 141 years. Merits happen on a merited on a meritorious day, a special day. So it's not a surprise that his Geula, the Friedrich Rebbe's liberation, was on the same day of his birthday, I should add. I neglected to mention last week, just a slip, um, that Gimel Tammuz corresponded this year with the 40th Sim Harambam. So though I spoke about it in different programs that I did in different Fabringens, I just wanted for the record to mention it, not as an aside, significant, it's interesting, Hashgach and Pratis, one of the major and powerful takonis that the Rebbe made in Tov Shem Memdal 1984 was to learn Rambam either three chapters a day and conclude almost once a year, or, three, or one chapter a day and conclude around every three years, or Sefer Mitzvahs corresponding to those uh, to that uh, uh, chapters in, ta- in Rambam. So the 40th year, 40, of course, is always a symbol of a new stage. The Gemara says, A person arrives 
but does not arrive to understand his teacher until 40 years, Ben Arboim Labina. So I just wanted to mention that to make sure that, of course, the lesson is a very practical one to fulfill, if you haven't yet, or with more passion and intensity, the learning of the Rambam, either three chapters a day or one chapter a day, or Sefer HaMitzvah. The Rambam is directly connected to the Rebbe. There are many different ways to explain that, besides the Rebbe choosing it, but like the Rambam, as the Rebbe says, is encompasses the whole Torah, as well as being something that's ma'achid and unites all the Jewish people. So it's being something very fitting to learn, especially in these last days before the Geula, full Geula, because that prepares the Geula when all Jews are united with one Torah. So that is the biggest keli to bring Geula. In addition, I once gave a long talk on this topic, I believe it was in Toronto, on the Sima Rambam, which you can look up at MeaningfulLife.com or our, or, our, or our YouTube channels. We're discussing what, what's the deeper connection, because the Rambam, both in the beginning of the Rambam and the end of the Rambam, is about Geula. The end of the Rambam is about filling the world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Molot is Deus Hashem, Havaya. The beginning is Yudke Vovke. You say there, you say this, Amud Achoch, edition. As the Rebbe explains, that the idea of knowing that there's a God, and then the second halacha, Im Adas, Shuhu as the Rebbe explains in that classic, powerful, revolutionary sikh that the Rebbe delivered, Yutas Kislev, Tov Hey, 1974 that where he explains that these two first halachas represent the very essence of how Torah has the power to change the world because it both enters into existence but it also comes from a level of Einimotze, the God that is beyond existence and that transforms the world into what a world that's filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. So the Rambam beginning and end and of course all the halachas in between are the implementation of that Torah that allowed Allah that transforms a material world into a spiritual environment where God feels comfortable. So the Rambam itself is the essence of manifesting Elokus in this world, which is Gili Eden Sov Be'elam Gashmi, the divine revelation in this world, which is essentially what Yemesha Mashiach is, as the Alter Rebbe writes in the beginning of chapter 37 in Tanya. Okay. So, being that we are entering the summer now, and Hashgacha Pratis questions that came in was one that's a follow-up from yesterday's parsha about Moshe striking the rock, which we spoke about last week and previous years. So here's an interesting confluence. So here's a question that someone asked. Um, there's a famous Gemara where the rabbis are debating the status of possible ritual impurities of a new style of oven. Yes, during the during the debate, the Baskel emanates and says the opinion of Rabbi Lezer is correct. The other rabbis ignore the Baskel and rule against Rabbi Lezer and opine that the Torah was given on earth to us. It's not in heaven. So we decide that locha and not a Baskel, not a call from heaven. Therefore, why was Moshe punished by God for hitting the rock? If we get determined how to interpret the laws, why wasn't Moshe given a fair trial on terra firma with human judges to interpret whether Moshe was guilty or innocent in carrying out God's order and how to draw water from the rock? And certainly human judges would take all the circumstances into account and find Moshe innocent. Interesting question. But first of all, remember Moshe and Hashem have a particularly unique relationship. Moshe was on the mountain with Abraham and learned for 40 days and 40 nights. There was no Bezdin there, there were no judges there. 
So there's that element that he's a leader chosen by the Ebrister. So that way he has a relationship with the Ebrister and when he does something, God himself has, a, has that connection with him. This wasn't about whether Moshe was guilty in a court of law. This is about whether Moshe was fulfilling what Hashem wanted. And for a Novi in general, a prophet, especially a Moshe, every word counts. The Ebrister said, speak. So the fact that he hit the rock because he didn't see water come out of it, for a level of Moshe, that is already a chil Hashem. Because the Jews said to themselves, look, if Moshe could change a word, we can change ten words, for example. As a matter of fact, in connection to Yud-based Thomas, the Rebbe once spoke in the, in the Mems and said that the Friedrich Rebbe, when he was first told that he can leave, for Gimel Thomas was the commuting, commutation of a sentence to go to Kastrama, to go to exile for three years. So they said he can leave on Thursday. And he asked, when would he arrive? It would be after Shabbos. So he refused. He didn't want to drive on the, go on the train on Shabbos. Even though halachically, number one, pekoach nefesh, this was Amish, a life of dangerous, and, and, and life, and his life was in danger. And secondly, you can leave on Thursday. If you're on the train before Shabbos, you left on Thursday. Yet, the Rebbe learned this lesson from Moshe Rabbeinu, but he was the Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe. And he knew that their intention was that they can then say, you see, your Rebbe, when it came to save his life, he drove on Shabbos. I, halachically, was permitted. You can find a loophole, you can find an explanation, but there's the impression, Marisayim, what others will see. The Gemara talks about Rabchir not wanting to buy meat on credit in case somebody sees him taking meat from the butcher and not paying. I'll say he didn't pay, even though it was on credit. But the impression, especially a leader, what people look at. So the Friedrich Rebbe, like taking the cue from Moshe Rabbeinu, one change from a Moshe Rabbeinu is a major thing. Even though for another human being, listen, water doesn't come from a rock, not when you speak to it, and not when you hit it. So to say, for example, what are you telling me? If someone says to Hashem, why are you telling me water will come from this rock, whether I hit it or speak? Water comes from rivers or from the rain. That would be defying God directly. Moshe Rabbeinu remembered that the first time he hit the rock, and that was what worked. That's what Abishta told him to do. So this time when, when he saw that water wasn't coming from the rock, what did he do? He spoke to it. He's, he, I'm sorry, he, instead of speaking to it, he hit it. Now... So what was he doing? He was still doing something that would be miraculous and something that had already a precedent. But he changed God's words. And that was the key thing to remember. Now, Chassidus talks about the lessons from this, the deeper lessons as well, that when you meet a person who has like a stone, a heart of stone, seems locked up like a rock, untouchable, impenetrable, you could think the only way to get through... Excuse me. The only way to get through this person is by being harsh, speaking tough. So we learn no. There are times, yes, you need that. But here's the lesson. Speak to the rock. Speak the words from the heart that enter the heart will pierce and ultimately melt even a heart of stone. So that brings me to the next point where someone writes the following how to treat, how counselors should treat campers. Hi, Rabbi, Rabbi Jacobson. As the summer approaches, I wanted to share something with your viewers and listeners who are going off to be staff at overnight camps. When I was a, a, a camper in a, in, in a camp, as a child in the 1980s, I was an out-of-towner in a bunk full of yeshiva kids. 
While some of the kids were mean to me, what really ruined my summer was my counselor, who really abused me. Baruch Hashem, not sexually, but emotionally and physically. I didn't forgive him and prayed for decades that Hashem repay him for the way he treated me. In 2004, he reached out to me to apologize. He has two severely handicapped children, and he recognized that Hashem may have repaid him for his misdeeds. Once he apologized so sincerely, I immediately forgave him. Counselors can build up a child. Counselors can build a child up or tear the child down. I implore camp staff to do their utmost to give children the best, most positive experience of a lifetime, and not, God forbid, what I went through. So I read it in its entirety, even though that piece about the children I would have skipped, but I didn't want to censor this letter particularly, because we are not here to, um, to uh, in any way, hurt any person. Even if they hurt us, we don't pray that they should be hurt in turn, and we don't know God's mysterious ways. The main point, of course, is the emphasis, which is absolutely correct, that when you are a counselor or an educator or a parent, or in any situation where you are under, under your care, you have children, whatever age it is, it's critical you understand these are God's children. So even if you have a child that may be a little difficult, like a rock, there's, not, there's never the approach of striking them, physically for sure not, but even emotionally or psychologically. So I thought it's an appropriate lesson, everything as we enter the summer, to God's children, remember that always. And we always have a way to do it gently. If discipline is needed, there are ways to do discipline, but never from anger and never with any abusive or demoralizing way. The Torah gives us ways to do things that can be done in a loving way, even when this discipline is necessary. Okay. So being now that we're entering Pasha Bolok this week, Let's talk about some Bullock issues from Parsha's Bullock and lessons we can learn from that. And, uh, and then we'll talk about some other interesting questions that came in. I'm always surprised because this is already 359 episodes. That's uh, over eight years. I never thought this program would continue on. That both has grown in its listenership and, and, and the submission of questions. At some point, you think every question that was possibly asked could be was already asked, but it's not the case. When you talk about life, my life, people's lives, there are always more questions. Sometimes they're similar, overlap, but the personalization of it is always unique. But actually, the very questions themselves are also coming new questions that I've not heard of before, and I'm really touched by it. And I wish all these questions would only be coming from joy and not painful situations, but. That's part of life as we have it, and we have Torah and to address all issues. With that said, it's a good time to mention and announce that we have a special website, chassidusapply.com. If you're not familiar with it, you can go there and ask any question. Nothing is off limits. Anonymously, confidentially, there's no names. If you want something from us, if you want us to respond to you, we need your email address. But if not, you can ask any question, and we cannot trace it. So you have total anonymity. You also can find the previous episodes, which have covered many, many topics. It's easy to search. Either type in a word you're seeking, a topic you're seeking, or you can go to timestamps. YouTube has timestamps where each episode has the exact place you just click on to go to the topic. You don't have to listen to the entire hour. I know some people tell me they listen double speed, which means an hour program you can listen to in 30 minutes. 
I am perfectly fine with that. The main thing is to have its pu'ula, its effect, and, and hopefully help you and every one of us to grow using chsidis, using teda, applying it to our personal lives. On that website, you'll also find chsidisapplied.com many resources, including the, the, including the archives I mentioned of all the previous episodes, including also the essays and the creative submissions in our annual My Life Chsidis Applied contest as well as resources around IM Bays, which I teach every morning, which you are welcome to participate in, both alive in Zoom and live YouTube. Also archived resources on Samarvov and other Hasidic discourses and more materials. Okay. And please take advantage of all of that. So with that, let us go to lessons from Balak and applying them to our lives. So Bullock has a bunch of interesting stories. Uh, firstly, the story, of course, of Pasha's Bullock and Bilam, where Bullock, the king of Moyav, commissions Bilam to curse the Jews. He sees them traveling on their way to Tzeson. He's frightened by them, threatened by them to curse the Jews. Briefly, the story goes that Bilam was more, more than happy to oblige, However, he said, I'm a prophet that only speaks what God tells me to speak. So I will only be able to say what God, if God does not allow me to curse them, I won't be able to. And indeed, three times, as much as Bullock attempts, Bilam, instead of giving curses, he offers the greatest blessings. Some of these blessings are the greatest blessings that we even say every morning. How good are the, the tents of Yaakov and so many other Asherinu Vilayato where he talks about about the Rambam brings that some of the blessings of Balaam refer to the Geula. So it was literally a total transformation from the negative to the positive. Then, but the continuing saga, and the continuing story, Balaam in his final curtain call says to Balak, if God doesn't want you to curse them, they won't, you can't be cursed them. But if they themselves undermine themselves, you have to, if you can incite them, that will make them vulnerable. And that's what indeed happens. They begin to worship a, uh, a Vedazara called Pa'ir, Bal Pa'ir. We're worshiping waste, not just regular idolatry, but of the lowest of the lowest sort. And then, of course, the Midianite women who seduce them, the story with Zimri, a leader of the tribe of Shimon, who openly desecrates God with a Midianite woman. Pinchas comes and spares them both. And with that concludes the Parsha, and that ends the Magefa, the epidemic, as a result of this rebellion of the Jewish people. So Bilam could not curse them, but they themselves were able to, unfortunately, that you can be your own worst enemy, as they say. So I have a bunch of questions that came in on this parsha, and I'll address some of them, as many as I can, in the context of Chesedah Supplied. So let's start with the beginning. If Bullock was an evil person who wanted to annihilate the Jewish people, why is he honored by having a parsha in the Torah named after him? Shouldn't he be blotted out like Haman and everyone should sound noisemakers when his name is mentioned? There must be a lesson the Torah is teaching us here. What do you think that lesson is? Very good question. Shame Rishoyim Yirkov, it says, that the names of wicked people should be, that should be annihilated, should deteriorate, should erode. And yet here we name it Shem Balak. Not to compare, but a similar question is asked about Pasha Kedach. 
Kedach, even though Kedach was, uh, of course, a levy and had great qualities, but he ended up rebelling. So the Rebbe speaks about this. Let's talk about Bolok. Bolok, on one hand, correct, he was the one that was an enemy. But the end of the story is, because of Bolok, the Jews received the greatest possible blessings. So there's two ways to look at an individual. One is their negative behavior, but they can also elicit something that's extremely powerful and positive. So there are parshas where the focus is on the hisapcha. Like when we speak about what will be later in this month, we're going to have Shavasa Batamus, 17th of Tammuz, which is a fast day due to the negative five bad things that happen on that day. And yet we say, that all these days should be transformed into holidays and celebrations. So there's something because since Ein Ra Yered from heaven, evil does not descend. It's man-made, so to speak. It's a result of the concealment that people behave in certain ways. But ultimately, the goal is transformation. So the Bolak Pasha, the story of Bilam, is all about this Hapcha, the Yapech, Klola where a curse, and people who wanted a curse, ended up blessing, which of course is similar to the story of Yudbeis Tammuz. That though it was in the darkest of dark, but it ended up, they themselves ended up freeing the Friedrich Rebbe. It wasn't like someone came and freed him. They acknowledged whatever reasons. But that they were pressured, there were other things. But the result was, the end result was liberation. So in that sense, Bolak then, though he didn't intend so, ends up being a catalyst for such transformation. And that's the theme of the Parsha. So if the Pasha would have been called a different name, it would not capture the very theme of transforming the negative into the positive. There are other deeper reasons as well. In Kedush, in Chassidus, it explains that everything, just like there's a Bolak in Klippa, there's a Bolak in Kedusha. But that's, I will leave for another time. But the point is, bottom line, transformation. Did Bilam's donkey really talk? Or is the story a metaphor? So the different... Are there other times in the Torah where animals talk? So actually, there are different opinions and commentaries, but we go, So even though there could be metaphorical elements, and there's some that hold it was a metaphor, but there's also the literal interpretation that he actually spoke. The question is, what's the significance of it? Why? God, Bilam, at the end of the day, is a prophet. If Hashem wants to tell him something, he told him. He told him, for example, later he put the words of blessings in his mouth. So why couldn't he tell Bilam? So there are again many different explanations. One that I spoke about once at length is, is Asin, Chamer, from the word Chamer. So a spiritual meaning of that, Chamer means the very crassness and coarseness of the human body. Like we say, Kisida Chamer Seinecha, the Torah of the Baal Shem Tev. Then you'll see the donkey of your enemy laden with weights, so you may think you'll ignore it. So he says, no, even if you see your body, your physical body, as something that is a, is a threat, senacha, a threat to you, your spiritual soul, your divine soul, so you can think you're going to ignore it. No, you should help you to transform it. Do not deny the physical. So one of the explanations given here is that Bilam was talking about prophet of God. He was on his way for a mission. It was not a good mission. The chamer, sometimes the body senses something that the soul does not sense. So it reminded Bilam that this is not the right thing to do. 
Bilaam strikes the body instead of listening to it and ultimately ends up listening to it. So the Ebeshter did not want to come to Bilaam directly. He wanted Bilaam's own system, meaning his own support system, to recognize that this is not a proper approach, what he's doing now, traveling to go curse the Jewish people. So even the Chamoir, even the Osin, Yiftach Pia Osin, also recognized that. Not just Bilam recognizes it, but the, ultimately recognizes it, but also the Chamer, which is again transformation of the very physical, not only Bilam, but his very donkey. In addition, of course, the donkey did nothing wrong. Bilam was the one that was on the trip and the journey on this mission. And the donkey did not want to participate in a mission of doom that would go against God. But the end of the story, as I said, is, is one of transformation. In the Zohar it says, Ve'yiftach piya'asin, just an interesting, almost a humorous type of interpretation. It tells that when a person is a speaker, don't take yourself so, so, yourself so seriously. It's not about you, it's about God speaking God's words. Because even a asin, even a donkey could also be made to speak. So it's not about you as a speaker, it's about what your message that you're carrying. Okay. In the prayer, Matevo Elecha Yaakov, Mishkin Secha Yisrael, an especially advantageous prayer because it was written by Bilam, who was a despicable idol worshiping, worshiping black magic purveyor, as it's an example of elevating something from the mundane to the holy? It's a question. The answer is absolutely. That there are blessings that come in a revealed way, and there are blessings that come from a negative place, but they are the greatest blessings of all because they're coming from something who had intention the exact opposite. So for Moshe Rabbeinu would say, Mateva Elechi Yaakov, beautiful blessing. When Bilam says it, it means even the negative forces, even as you just described with all your adjectives, who Bilam was, it has a powerful, powerful message and lesson. Like the Gemara Al-Derech, like the Gemara says about uh, Avadya, that the greatest uh, prophecy about the redemption is, comes from Avadya was a ger. So the Gemara Sanhedrin asked why. Why not Yeshaya, Yemyo, Yecheskel, great prophets? Why a Geravadja? From him come the greatest, the, the ultimate prophecies about redemption, about the Geula. So it says, with example, Meneo be Abba, Lishde be Naga. That's where it's sourced. That to cut down the tree, you need to have the tree. The handle of the axe is what cuts down the tree, which the, the axe is made of. So if you want to transform the world, you need something from the very world that you're transforming to transform. That's ultimate transformation. If it's a force that comes from outside, so yes, you can, sub, you can tame, you can subdue, you can even um, control, but real transformation is when the thing itself transforms itself. The wood of the tree cut down by the wood of the ax, the handle, made from that tree of course is a principle also in homeopathy and other medical interventions that you'd use the virus itself or the disease itself to fight the disease, to build immunity against it. So in that sense, Mateva Yaakov comes from that place. How is a Gentile idol worshiper, Bilam, able to prophesy the end of days and the coming of Mashiach when even a tzaddik like Yaakov is unable to do so? I assume you're referring to when Yaakov wanted to reveal the Ketz, God concealed it from him, did not allow him to do so. 
But regardless, very good question, but the same answer answers all these questions, like the story with Avadja, as I just mentioned. It's not about how he can. Remember, there's only one God. God uses different instruments and different channels of how to fulfill his desire. When he needs to particularly transform something from within the system, meaning from within the material world, what better way than through Bilam? Just like we say Yisrael came before Mount Tatum, we needed Yisrael. What do you need Yisrael? The Jews had Moshe Rabbeinu. They had left Egypt, the parting of the sea. They were marching toward Mount Tatum, toward Sinai. You need Yisrael to come out to your deity. Now I know that your God is greater than all gods. So Chassidus explains, based on the Medrashim, because Yisrael, from the word Yisrael, Ha'er min that the greatest appreciation of light and the, sometimes the deepest levels of light come from the darkest places. Because the darkness is also not a self-created entity, God forbid. That Simpsum, in language of Chassidus, can reveal a deeper power of the divine than light does. Just as restraint and discipline and, and uh, gvura, hen hen gvuresov, can reveal a deeper power of a person who has what to say, but they're controlling themselves and restraining themselves. So the darkness has tremendous energy, like a black hole. And when you want true transformation, like a gu'ula, you want to have that, you want to have every speck, every resistance, every, you can say, adversary. All the adversarial forces should also acknowledge and also recognize the gu'ula. So coming from Bilam, then you know that it's a true transformation. Because it's not just that, that it came from a holy source. That even a place like that, a sorcerer like Bilam, also acknowledges and gives out that blessing. So it's the ultimate transformation of Golos into Gaul. Why is Bilam considered a villain? A villain? He might have originally had bad intentions, but ultimately he did the right thing and blessed the Jews. And since we have the concept of a that the action is paramount, and his actual actions were good, why isn't he remembered more fondly? Well, <laughs> yes, we remember his blessings more fondly, but at the end of the day, his intentions were quite bad, and we see at the end of the day what he ended up doing. He gave very, I don't want to say wise advice, but he gave very good advice to Bullock, anti-Semitic advice of how to hurt the Jews. So to say that he became, because his, his words became blessings, that was because God wanted it to come through him. But he not necessarily was very happy with that. It wasn't like he said, okay, now I start loving the Jews. He remained who he was. But, and yet that's the chiddush here. That's the ultimate transformation, that even though he remained who he was, his words became such blessings. So that's the basic answer. In other words, even when through a, a villain comes blessing doesn't mean the person doesn't bec- suddenly becomes a tzaddik. Now, Bilam did tshuva and completely transformed himself. It's another story. But that's not what we're discussing right now. Okay. <laughs> okay, some other, I guess, side questions, but I'll read them. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in the Parsha, Bullock hires Bilam to curse the Jews, but Bilam ends up blessing the Jews. Does it say anywhere that Bullock asked for his money back? Because B- B- Bullock did obviously uh, compensate Bilam and uh, all the different things that Bullock offered him. Um, I have not seen anywhere it says he asked for his money back. 
It depends what contract they had. Maybe he was paying him no matter what happens. Uh, maybe they didn't expect these results. Um, but it's an interesting question. <laughs> if anybody has any input on that. I like the question especially because you're making it very practical. Like today, you hire someone, they don't do the job, or they do the opposite job. Maybe Billam should have actually paid him back more for what ended up happening. But remember, Billam's final advice was probably worth all the money that Bullock wanted because he wanted, at the end of the day, he wanted the Jews to be hurt. Whether it came through curses or it came through themselves. So maybe that would be an answer that Billam would say to him, one second, you got what you wanted at the end anyway. And Another question. Thank you for your informative Sunday night program. Keep up the good work. My question is, when looking back at biblical stories of huge communal idols, like the Baal or the Dagan, I don't don't understand why people have such uncontrollable urge to worship them. It seems silly. It's just a stone-carved object. What was the big draw to it? In modern times, we would laugh at someone who worshipped a stone idol. Is there something today that, that is the equivalent of idol worship that has similar uncontrollable urges? Okay. Well, the Gemara confirms what you're saying. But the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, actually talking about Baal Pa'er and other things, that Avedizara was a taiva. There was actually a pleasure for Avedizara, just like there's a sexual pleasure. And that was taken away, that we don't have that desire today. When actually type of inappropriate, immoral sexual behavior, that type of was taken away, it caused that people would not have children. The Gemara brings the case with the, the, the hen and the, the, the chicken laying an egg, stopped laying eggs once they didn't have any desire. So it's probably difficult for us to imagine something because we don't relate to it. But I think we could find some way to explain it. Remember a few things. That Avedichus Avedizar, the Rambam writes, that it didn't just begin, they decided to worship a stone or a tree or the sun or the moon. Everyone knew that there was a God. But then God is invisible, and they were looking for something that's more accessible. So they looked at the stars, seeing that as God's so-called instruments. So as long as you see the stars as God's instruments is one thing, but then the stars became more real to them than God himself. You can relate to them. Then they, discar- then they decided, since they want something even more accessible, to have build, build houses of worship that correspond to these stars. Find trees, stones, other objects that correspond to the stars. Slowly, slowly, as the Rambam explains, during those generations after Odom, till Avram Avinu, which is, we're talking about 20 generations, what happened was that they suddenly replaced God with these new objects. So the intention initially was to have something to relate to, have a God on your terms, so to speak. Now, of course, that defeats the whole purpose of a God. The whole point of the God is that God creates us on his terms. No, it's God creates us in the divine image, not we create a God in our image. But that's essentially what a graven image is. Now, later, once it became its own entity, then he speaks about priests who decided to make money on the deal, became its own industry and its own commerce, so to speak. So if you think about it, at the heart, it's finding something that you can relate to that you, you attribute the powers of a deity. It's absolutely a, the greatest sin, Yarek Valyavar idolatry. In other words, you have to die before you do that. But you could understand why someone would have an appeal to that. So it begins by something that may be attractive, but then you start giving it these powers. And you can, since you can see it, 
it became an industry. Terach was an idol manufacturer. You name the god, he had it for you. Is there an equivalent today? Of course there's an equivalent today. It may not be a physical idol, it could be money. It could be anything we worship that's not God, including ourselves. At the end of the day, it's self-worship or worshiping images. People worship Hollywood stars. People worship sports heroes. People worship uh, soap opera actors. Now, is it worship in the sense where they bow to it and bring offerings? Maybe not quite that time, but that way, but sometimes it goes that way as well. Some, some rock stars talk about how people left offerings, incense, and literally like, like carbonus. So it's anything you start worshiping that's not a god, like the Friedrich Rebbe said, one god and many worlds. Not one world and many gods. Every day another god, as he explains there in that, when he said that to Nachmanson, to, the, to, his, to, his, um, to his, those captors. He said basically that, that every day, whatever desire you have, that becomes your God. So that's really what it comes down to. It's finding something, replacing God with something else. And that is not so, uh, not underst- that's understandable. Not justifying, but it's understandable. And the equivalent, yes, you can see today people have obsessions, whether it's addictions or other obsessions, that take complete control over them. And if you stand as an intelligent person from the side, you say, why would you be completely addicted to your smartphone, to texting. Why can't you just put it aside? Doesn't seem rational. It looks like it's controlling us instead of us controlling it. I'm not suggesting that's Avedah Zara, but in a certain way, Avedah Shazara Le, it's a certain, we should be in control of what comes into our lives, not that thing should control us. So you can find many examples of this type of obsession today as well. The final part of, uh, well, there's many more questions regarding, but the next series of questions around Baal Pa'er. So Baal Pa'er is at the end of the Parsha, talks about how the Jews got caught up in a certain particular idol worship called Pa'er. This was defecating yourself, and that became their worship in front of these idols. Essentially worshiping the waste, human waste. Now, it's despicable and disgusting. You think, how would anybody stoop to that? So what is that, what's going on? So there are different explanations given for this as well, how that originated. How in the world could a group who witnessed the miracles of Hashem be enticed to do something so disgusting? Well, Chassidus explains the following. In Tumai Morim, the Tzamech Tzadik, one mimer in Mishpatim, Eira Tere Mishpatim, I'll give you the page, the end of page, um, 1214, Aleph, Reish, and on, and on page 147 and on, discuss Baal Pa'er and Naveda. Why is it possible? And the explanation there is that everything in this world is waste, comes from waste, psalus. So there's f- food and waste. When the body releases waste, basically it first digests and absorbs the nutrients, and the waste is eliminated. Part of the natural process of existence. What is it in Ruchnius? In Ruchnius, like this Kedusha, holiness, is completely and seamlessly connected to the divine. But Klippas Nega is where the Abishta concealed the divine energy, the divine spark, into a Klippa. Klippa is a husk, a peel, a shell. Think of a fruit inside of a peel. So as long as you understand it's a Klippa Lepri, as the Shalor writes, 
means you understand this is a peel. This is an orange peel protecting the orange. Great. But, but you start worshiping or start connecting to the peel itself and forget about the divine spark within, which is essentially Klippa Snake, a material world that's neutral. It's not Shalosh Klippa Satmeis, the three intense, the three impure husks, where there the divine spark is so concealed that you're not allowed to, it's off limits. Klippas nega is the things is is everything in heter, taivas heter, which means things that you're allowed to do: eating, drinking, sleeping, walking, business. It's neutral, but it's the divine is concealed. So you can either use it l'shem shemaim, and then you elevate the spark into kedusha into holiness, or you can use it for the opposite. So essentially, the idea of worshiping waste was they understood. He writes that the Semar Sadik writes this explicitly. They understood that this material world's power is only the waste of the divine, but that's what they wanted. They didn't want a connection with the divine. So what's the best way to demonstrate that? By worshiping waste. So it wasn't as disgusting in their mind as you may think, or you can say it's very disgusting because the whole world is a form of waste if you don't understand that it's really a klippa for a shelf or something that's the nutrients within, the fruit within. And that's what happened. Once the Jews went that direction, are you disconnecting from God on your own? Now they became vulnerable. And that's when the Magaifa broke out. Interestingly, just as an aside, the Samach Tzedek in the Mishpatim Maimer explains, it connected to a plague, to an epidemic that happened in the, in the Samach Tzedek's times. He writes, a plague that is very not natural, connected to elimination of waste, diarrhea, and so on. And he explains it with the context of Baal Pa'er about waste. Ultimately, the goal is, of course, is to connect to the Kedusha, the holiness, and the waste needs to be expelled and seen as, as waste. Once you make the psalas, in other words, you eat the peel and you throw away the fruit, that's a big problem. You want to eat the fruit and throw away the peel. I'm seeing the peel only as a protective element, a protective guard for the fruit within. That's the brief answer to it. So essentially, in, in practical Chassidus applied terms, it's worshipping materialism as an end in itself, when materialism is only meant to be a shell. And yes, in this shell, that's what God wanted to build a home for God. What's tachtenim? Nothing lower in the divine revelation, meaning complete, almost complete concealment of the divine, to the point that it's moleklipas v'sitra achra, I'm quoting now from Tanya chapter 36, filled with husks and the other side, meaning the, the husk side, which is the other side, not the Kedusha holiness, to the point that it comes that a person says, that people say, Aniva afsiyeh, me and nothing else. So instead of Eneid Mulvade, God and nothing else, me and nothing else, that is the place where God wants us to build a divine home. But that comes with recognizing the difference between materialism as an end or as a peel, as a keli, as a container for the, for the divine. When we recognize that, that's when we, each one of us brings the gula through our own efforts and ultimately the gula amitiz v'ashlem is when the whole world is seen as the material world is seen as a husk, as a shell, a peel for the divine presence within it. Okay.
Uh, there are more questions on this Pasha, but I, I, will, I will try to address them next week. Um, especially the end of the Pasha with Pinchas and Zimri. It deserves its own discussion. But since the Pasha Pinchas next week continues, that Pinchas was rewarded for his act of sanctifying God's name by killing Zimri and the Midianite woman, so I'll reserve that. We'll speak about it next week. Okay. So let's move on to some other questions. One is this. Is the appointment of an observant Jew as prime minister of Israel a sign of Mashiach's coming? So Naftali Bennett is the first religious and Shoma Shabbos prime minister of Israel. Is this a good sign that Mashiach's arrival is imminent? It's a good question. I don't have a very black and white answer. We know God's mysterious ways. I believe it's deeper than that. If he does what has to be done, al in the running of this country, in the strength that's needed, as the Rebbe emphasizes, in dealing with the enemies, and he inspires the people to be more committed to God and God's values, then, of course, it's a sign. That's a sign, even if a person who's not a prime minister does that, that's also a piece of Mashiach, because that's the whole point. Every mitzvah is, that the, is revealing the Mashiach within us, Mashiach within the world around us, the Geula. So if he does that, absolutely. As prime minister, being a public position that has an impact on many people, that would be the case. You could even argue that even if it was someone that was not on a revealed level of Shemir Torah mitzvahs, if they did that, that, if they did the right things, that's what God wants of them. And we then hope that they would also become Shemir Torah Mitzvahs in the fullest sense of the word, word. So that would be my response. It's not so much about who's appointed per se, it's how they behave. You have unfortunately people who wear yarmulkes and they keep Shabbos and so on, not necessarily living up to the spirit of what needs to be lived up to, especially once you get into politics and leadership. But if that happens, we all celebrate that. And um, that's the key to the answer to that question. Okay. Is Mashiach's arrival imminent? Well, the Rebbe tells us it's imminent, and therefore you could look for signs. It's hard to say in each, every situation, is that a sign? I like to say yes, that anything can be used for the positive, it can be a sign. But I also am careful because you don't want to become too sensational that this is a sign, that's a sign. More than general, we're going in that direction. And Eretz Yisrael is a place that has become a Mokam Teda. There's no question, as there are so many Jews living there that have gathered from all over. The Rebbe said that the Jews coming there is also a sign, a stage of getting closer to the Gula. So in that sense, that would also be part of the story as we look at this whole picture going on. And we all hope for the best. Another question in a different, completely different context is about... Would the Rebbe be happy with people making weddings outside of Crown Heights? Okay, dear Rabbi Jacobson, now that it's after Shavuos and Simcha Sabar Hashem in full swing, wedding invitations have been and continue to arrive almost daily. This is a wonderful thing, particularly following the terrible sadness and inability to celebrate in the normal fashion for much of the past year. May the, smich, the, smich, the Simchas continue and increase always. As I open the invites and see some of the Simcha venues, 
I'm torn between feeling great joy for these upcoming weddings and real sadness that these local Crown Heights families are choosing to celebrate these special milestones outside of our shkuna, our neighborhood. I do not, God forbid, want to speak negatively about another Jew's simcha. I'm just trying to understand why the Rebbe's very strong directive to make simchas exclusively right here in Crown Heights in our neighborhood is suddenly falling by the wayside. Rahman al-Islam, God forbid. I, knew that, I know that during the height of COVID-19, there were reasons to find outdoor venues, etc. But this is not the case now, and these are no longer the reasons given. Some complain there are not enough venues available in Crown Heights for the amount of simchas on available days, and other excuses are shared as well. But at the bottom line, but the bottom line always has been, should always be, that the Rebbe spoke passionately and b'chol loshen shalbakosha, meaning in every form of request, that kan siva Hashem that this is the place where God is sending His bracha, and this is where simchas in our community belong. What has changed? We seem to be able to find solutions for far greater challenges when we want to. Are there nicer halls, fancier venues, better parking in other areas? Yes, of course. But that is not who we are and what defines us. If we are chassidim and need to behave like, we need to behave like chassidim. Do we really care how elaborate the venue is? We've all just seen, and for terribly sad reasons, that a couple can get married with 10 people in a backyard, in a garage, celebrating with a drive-by. Are these couples less well-married, Chaz Rashom? God forbid. Now, thank Hashem, we have the ability to make weddings as we are used to. Why are we slowly forgetting that the Rebbe begged, what the Rebbe begged us to do? My, apologize, my apologies for this lengthy question, but I know that I'm not the only one who feels this way. If you can, please address this issue and clarify what the Rebbe said about this issue. Thank you very much for everything you do for so many people. May you be blessed in accordance. Okay, well, I think it speaks for itself. I will just add... Many people may not know this. It was in the year Tavshin Chavtes when Crown Heights was going through a terrible crisis and many, many Jews who lived here made their exodus. I was a young boy, I was 12 years old, but I remember it. I remember my block on Sullivan Place turning completely, um, all the white Jews left and that whole block turned black. Not that there's anything wrong with black, but the Jews were running. And this happened all over Crown Heights. And the Rebbe had terrible aggravation over it. Actually, that's, that year, Pesach, Tavshin, Chavtes, you can look it up in the Sophists and the Editions, Sichas, Volume 7, the Rebbe speaks about it. At length, the halachic reasons why a person cannot just leave, besides selling of shuls, besides putting other people in danger, a lot of material there. And that was when the Rebbe requested of one of the ways to bolster the community that, which was blessed place where the Friedrich Rebbe's life was for the last 10 years of his life, the Rebbe's life, Chabad. And general Jews living here, that people should not leave that. One of the things the Rebbe suggested and asked, not just suggested, asked that weddings, weddings and simchas should not be made outside of Crown Heights. Till then, everyone made weddings wherever it was easy to do. And this wasn't just a request, the Rebbe actually demanded it. And I say demanded, the Rebbe never forced anyone to do whatever, but everybody listened. To the point, I'll tell a personal story. My sister was married in 1979. The only hall in Crown Heights that was a proper hall for a wedding was, was called the Jewish Center at the time. Hall of Torah today. Hall of Menachem. 
My grandfather, my mother's father, refused to go into the Jewish center, as a few other Jews did for their own religious reasons. My mother, this was the first wedding. I'm the oldest grandchild, but my sister was the first one getting married. She didn't want to make a wedding without her father there. As much as they asked, he wouldn't change his mind, position. What do you do? My father also had a lot of guests. Was, he couldn't just do it in a small little house. So finally he came up with an idea. He went to Brooklyn Museum. And at the time they didn't rent out. But through his connections, my father was a journalist, through his connections with the city, he got permission. Now it was not going to be a cheap proposition. It was going to be quite expensive. Being a caterer, and the whole place was not really made for weddings. But my father was so happy because at least he's complying with the Rebbe's request. Heartfelt request to make weddings in Crown Heights. Brooklyn Museum. My father wrote to the Rebbe. Well, to his surprise, he got an answer. And the Rebbe writes that if you, a public figure, make a wedding outside of Crown Heights, it will be against my will, mitatrask, with a bang. In other words, everybody will know about it. It will be like a public, public essentially, defiance of the Rebbe's request. So, Bavade the Rebbe wrote, for sure you'll find an Eitzah, and should be Rishad Tevim Muslachas. Now, Brooklyn Museum is on Washington Avenue in Eastern Park. You could argue it's Crown Heights. But the Rebbe did not even that, he didn't accept. Without trask against my will. So they broke their heads, what do you do now? Imamish had no option. Prospect Park was further out, <laughs> further than Brooklyn Museum. So finally, my father happened to be in Washington, just, to sound, just for the end of the story, the happy ending, is that he was in Washington, D.C. for a party at the Rose Garden in the, by the White House. They had a big outside tent, a beautiful affair. See, maybe a tent somewhere. Where could we build a tent? So they finally decided upon a place, the south lawn of Beis Rivka, basically a parking lot, which actually now is being transformed into I hear this new seminary of Beis Rivka. The parking lot. They clean it up, built wooden floors, built a beautiful tent. The catering connects to the kitchen in Beis Rivka. It was still very big <laughs> production, very expensive, but it was in Crown Heights. So I personally have seen and witnessed how one person, my father and my mother, in honoring her father, did, found an Eitzah. No one ever did it again in Crown Heights that way because Holotera, thank God, expanded. So, yes, it, it'd be quite questionable the Rebbe's attitude. Well, it's not questionable, it's quite clear the Rebbe's attitude. And I think people have gotten lax with this. As the writer in this letter says, I'm not here to preach, I'm not here to tell anyone what to do. But I think a, a platform like My, Chassidus, My Life Chassidus Applied is appropriate to bring this up and do with it as you see fit. But this is definitely something the Rebbe wanted. And the Rebbe never changed his position on this matter. So it's not about being critical to people who've made weddings outside of Crown Heights. Everyone's wedding should be blessed. But it's something that we could all think about and, um, and fulfilling what the Rebbe had asked. And this is not just about weddings, it's about events, events in general. And uh, I think, Okay. Now, um, let us see where we have. So let's talk about... Juneteenth. Okay, the question is this. Should we be celebrating or dismissing the establishment of Juneteenth as a national holiday?
Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I want to comment on something that's bothering me. Yesterday, President Biden enacted a law making Juneteenth a national holiday. Juneteenth represents the day when the final group of African slaves were set free. That was June 19th, I believe, uh, 1867. It bothers me that many people in the community are making fun of Juneteenth and laughing about it on social media and in ways that at best are just uninformed and at worst are overly racist. I feel that forced slavery is wrong and that emancipating the slaves was the correct thing to do and makes our country a better place. Our Jewish community celebrates the time we were freed from slavery on Passover. And I feel any group that was forcibly, forcibly, forcefully enslaved and then freed also deserves a holiday. So therefore I say happy Juneteenth. My question has, is, has the Rebbe ever made public statements about the United States allowing slavery and then doing the right thing then and ending slavery? Another person writes, is this, it is said that we had to go through slavery in Egypt in order to become stronger and better people as in the olive only produces oil when it is squeezed. Can a similar thing be said about the African slaves in the United States? So the Rebbe did make reference. I remember once where he spoke about a man called Abraham, he said, who was, uh, who was emancipated the, the slaves in, the, in this country. There's no question, the Rebbe said this even about apartheid in South Africa. He said to a rabbi who had asked him, he said, as Jews we can't condone it. Because it's definitely wrong. So slavery is no question inappropriate. Now, as far as a holiday goes, the country, look, the same country that enslaved has the right to also make it into a holiday. The problem many people may have, the other argument would be, when, once you get into the politicization of it with BLM and other things, often associated even with anti-Semitism, then it gets conflated. That's more than just purely remembering the, that slavery ended. Is it going to be used the wrong way? But on the other hand, can you, can you uh, criticize it? So I would stay out of this debate, meaning I'm not here to criticize, definitely not criticize Juneteenth, unless, again, it's used for progressive purposes that are not healthy and destructive. The very concept, look, the very concept of honoring the fact that slavery ended, which was an injustice, is a positive thing. But the reason I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat ambivalent or ambiguous about it is not because I don't think it's a good thing that slavery ended, but I'm concerned about how it's going to be used and why this timing and so on. But I don't want that to be taken the wrong way. So that's how I would respond to it. Now, yes, if the, uh, I've said this when the Black Lives Matter began talking about after George Floyd was killed, is that if the, if the blacks would learn from the Jews that came out of Egypt and other forms of slavery not to be angrier and not to be violent and not to loot, but actually to become greater people with a higher morality, that would be the olive being pressed, developing into something far greater. Nelson Mandela show, showed that. Other black leaders have shown such behavior. But once it's turned into something where you're going to vengeance and violence with violence and injustice with fighting injustice with injustice, that's a big problem. So of course it's an opportunity. Any person who's gone through any oppression or difficulty, including slavery, can become a far greater and more refined person. That's the challenge. And that's what I would be my call to the black community. And for that matter, any community that has suffered is to become greater people. And by all means, legal rights that every person has, if someone is discriminated against, whether they're black, 
or red or Jewish or minority or Hispanic or Asian. Yes, this country, all men are created equal, but with legal ways and not through violence and not through anger and not through um, rhetoric that is offensive and hurtful and calling for any type of hurting another person. So that's my response to that. Now, there's more to talk about, but let's go to, due to the limits of time, I'm going to go, what is the concept of tainug according to Chassidus? So, maybe I'll do this in two parts. I would like you to explain the concept of tainug, pleasure in Chassidus. Tainug is a word usually defined as pleasure even though it's a limited definition, as you'll see from the question. At least according to my understanding, Tainug is the peak or pinnacle of all the spheres, all the spheres. But in human terms, Tainug seems to correspond to self-gratification, which is the lowest or most base of our motivations. And that's true whether we're talking about a simple pleasure like food or a more sublime pleasure like achieving a goal or comprehending a difficult topic. They all trigger the same reward center of the brain. So what is the spiritual level of Tainug? that is so great and so powerful and so lofty. Even a spiritual pleasure or delight is also self-gratification. So a very good question. It's a word used in Chassidus a lot, Tainug Rotsen. Atik and Arich of Keser, with Tainug being the ultimate. Now you have to remember that when, when we talk about how God creates existence, you have to start from the top down, not the bottom up. So let's not talk a moment about our pleasure. Let's talk about divine pleasure, God's pleasure. The word nesave. Nesave means a taiva, a desire, a pleasure. Now why is that word, word used? We know by God we don't have any type of anthropomorphic terms, any types of words of that nature. Says the Alter Rebbe, that why, why did he desire? On a desire there's no question. In other words, saying that we're using a word, we only use a word to explain something that is higher than logic and rational because logic and rationale has not yet been created. So though we can't use the word taiva or tainug in the Ebrister, but it's the best term we have to say about something that is not defined by reason, by rhyme, by any of the structures and definitions that we are driven by. So as an example, it would be a person's pure desire for something without necessarily a reason. In its purest form, of course, it's a desire for very sublime ethereal things. Can that desire also be applied to something opposite? That's Pechidus Adam, yes. It says, It says, are the two extremes. There's nothing greater than Einig. Nothing lower than Nega, which is a, uh, is, is like, Nega uh, is a, Tsaras, uh, is a, um, um, a blemish, we talk about the leper, a leprosy, but it's the same letters. So of course pleasure can be held hostage and hijacked and used for something negative. But the pure concept of something beyond anything we can relate to is that pure desire. In Lamaila and Ruchnius, it's pure desire of God, but you can't even use the word desire, so you say Nesav is the best word we can use. That in turn defines the Ratzin. The, the will of a person. So the pleasure, so to speak, is the, is the will. Now, unfortunately, in our world of Freudian psychology, pleasure, of course, the pleasure principle, like you said, from the, that, uh, that is, um, 
the pleasure principle of self-gratification, says is the heart of everything, that's a negative application of it. And the positive, it's the pure pleasure of the soul connecting to the purest part of godliness. Now there's an interesting sikh of Ayeshev Tovshin Lamed Zayin, where the Rebbe speaks about this. And this I'll leave for the next, uh, for next episode. We'll discuss this more. But when you speak about tiny, you have to think in terms of the superconscious of the superconscious, also associated with Yechida. So there's Yechida, there's Chaya. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, the conscious faculties. Chaya is Ratzon, will or desire, desires and will. And, and Tainug, or Atik, is connected with Yechida. Yechida liyachdecha. So that pure pleasure when you completely connect to something where you belong. And the key thing is to, this is to qualify and say it's not the pleasure as we know when you eat a good piece of food or even the pleasure from understanding something well, comprehending an idea. Rather, it's the purest part of the soul that's before it has entered into defined faculties. So we, con- we connect that to the etzem. So etzem anefesh is where that, because etzem anefesh is, transcends all the faculties. As I said, I'll speak about this some more in the next uh, program. With this, I want to add one more thing. Someone wrote a comment about last week's episode, which was episode 358. So someone said, the number 358, the number of your last program is Bajgacha Pratis Gematia Mashiach. Okay. That program was a special Gimel Thomas program. Fine. Let's conclude with the essays. We're talking about the 27th place winners. Four Four tracks, essay in English, Tapping into Our True Selves, Mushki Azagwi, age 23, Bernays Chabad of Muncie, hometown Montreal, Canada. Tapping into our true selves, finding that true entity that Chassidus teaches us about who the true you is versus the projected you. Essay in Hebrew, men, Hismedidus Anachei de Mulas Viva. How to behave or how to, how to, uh, how your attitude should be in context of your social circle, that which is around you. In other words, defining yourself as yourself instead of being defined by others. Elio Darim Betar Elit Israel. The essay in Hebrew, women. Madu Yesh Kolka Harbe Rabba Elam. Why is there so much evil in the world? Talking about the nature of existence. What is the true nature of existence, good or evil? Of course, goodness is what Chassidus teaches us is the essence of existence. Mushka Trebnik, student in Kfar Chabad, Israel. And finally, the creative track, Let's Take It Easy, Poetry, Shalom Lipovenko, 25 fashion designer, Toronto, Ontario. A beautiful poem that talks about life and all its challenges, the difficulties, but also the growth that comes through it all. These, the essay, the English, and the creative can be seen at chassidahsupply.com. The Hebrew is at diralo.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org. With that, we conclude this special episode for Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tammuz, episode 359, My Life Chassidah Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone should have a Gu'ula Dike, Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tammuz, personal Gu'ula, global Gu'ula. And we should march to the Gu'la Mitiz Vashlema, in this Chodesh Gu'la, as the Rebbe calls this month of Tammuz. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.